Hello and welcome to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the Skinny Magazine. It's Peter, Ellie, and Jamie this week. Jamie, how are you? Uh, I'm very good, Peter. How are you? I'm all right. This is the second time we've done this. I think it is actually going back. We should stop just saying to people that this is the second time we've done this because the second takes normally quite good. But if we didn't let on that they were second takes, they'd be even better. Through the magic of editing, the podcast can be whatever we want it to be. That's very true. They don't know about the four hours we've spent in this room already today. Uh, yeah. Just how much we hate each other. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we are back at ehfm.live having another fun day of podcasting. Before we get started today, thanks to everyone who came to the movie screenings that we had on this week. We'll be announcing the next round of those shortly, so keep an eye on socials and the website, etc., etc. On this week's episode, nards, women in saunas, business bastards, things of this nature, a fun time ahead. I mean, there's always kind of nerds and business bastards on this uh, podcast, basically. Tag yourself. I'm nerd. <laughs> uh, should we just should we just jump straight into it? Anna Heat is at London Film Festival, so she will be back in two weeks' time, presumably with great tell of the city they call London, and presumably we'll have seen some films that she can talk about, or she can just do a five minute dive on her time in London. It's up to her. Yeah, just talk about Pretz, you know, like they're really into Pret down there. Those yeah, I know it's folk. gross, isn't it? What happened to Greg's? Anyway, (laughs) let's just get cracking with first film of the week, which is Blackberry. In 1990s Canada, two of the aforementioned nards are working on a handheld email device when they run into a shark-like business bastard uh, who sees the potential in their tech. It's time for money, for power, and for mobile telephony. Uh, Jay Baruchel and Matt Johnson, who's also the director of the film, play the Research in Motion co-founders Mike Lazaridis and Doug Fregan. And It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's Glenn Howerton plays the aforementioned bastard Jim Balsilli. Jim, if you're listening, I can only apologise. It's Glenn's portrayal of you in the film that has led me to say these things, which are my own opinions. <laughs> so, Jamie met up with Matt Johnson at Glasgow Film Festival to chat about the making of the film. You can listen to that episode of the podcast on the feed and also on our YouTube channel. And There's also a print version of that interview in the October magazine. So we've really put all of our eggs into this one Canadian basket. But luckily, Jamie... Matt is a good chat and the film is quite good. Matt is a good chat, he's a good laugh. He seemed to love Scotland, by the way. He was like all over the glass. I've never seen a filmmaker embrace a festival so much. I think he spent the whole time there. I'm not sure if the festival put him up or he just said, I'm going to just hang around. I mean, talk about Greg's. He, he enjoyed Greg's. I remember there was a video that uh, JFF put out of him loving Greg's. He talked to me about like deep fried pizza. He was like, yeah, he's a real kind of like uh, embrace Scotland. Uh, he may still be here for all I know he could be, like, still <laughs> he's in this room with us now <laughs> there was a sour point during an interview where he he, um, he, he said he really liked Lemmy which is good and then, then he described Lemmy as um, the Scottish Chris Lilly which I didn't want to have the heart to break it to him that Lemmy would really hate that comparison but other than that top guy the thing is if you get one wrong then that just proves like it's not a put on yeah. it's not an act yeah. like if you're capable of being flawed he doesn't have some like correspondent with you know an earpiece who's telling him all the hot Scottish references to make so that he wins people over. Not like us who are totally prepared for this podcast. He's coming up, spitting off the top, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I never re- recommend anything that's bad or get, get <laughs> yeah. or make the wrong comparisons. Ever. I've never got basic details of a metaphor or simile <laughs> mixed up in my life, and I want that on the record. So a lovely guy who really, as you say, embraced Glasgow Film Festival, and I think had a really good time with the film at Glasgow. Did you see it in Glasgow? Uh, I saw it on a screener before the interview, so I didn't see it in the screen, but supposedly it went down really well. I think it was very much embraced by the, the Glasgow audience, so that was good. Good stuff. And Probably why he stuck around, because he thought, my God, these people love me. I'm a god here. <laughs> they're feeding me Greg's, they're giving me pizza, you know. 
They're not pointing out that my references to Limmy are slightly inaccurate. They're lovely chats. What a great time I'm having in this city we call Glasgow. Ellie, the film itself, what did you think? Oh, I loved it. I had such a great time with that. I wish I was in that screening because I'm willing about that, like, you know, people were really vibing with it. It's like, so Glenn Howerton, right? I think that this is, this is really who I want to talk about in regards to this film. He is from Always Sunny. He left Always Sunny at the end of season 12, but immediately came back for season 13. And there was a rumor that the reason that he left was he was worried about getting inseparably bonded to this role, this iconic role of Dennis Reynolds, who's this massive fucking psychopath and like a massive creep. And, and, and he's kind of right. Now people can't look at him without thinking that, you know, he's that really creepy guy from Always Sunny. But, you know, he is a Juilliard-trained actor. So if he wanted to do like... I don't know, a genuine romantic role. Nobody would nobody would want to see that. But this role in Blackberry, it, it's like everything that's great about Dennis taken to a new level. He's sort of like Malcolm Tucker from The Thick of It. He just has the shortest temper and just chews up the scenery. He dominates the scene. If he's not on screen, it's the thing where if he's not on screen, you're just waiting for him to appear again because he's working so well against like the very like meek Jay Burakel. And, you know, there's one point where he's like at a payphone and he just tears it in half because he's having an argument with the engineering team on the other half of the phone. And he he makes being that angry look like so much fun. And yeah, like that's definitely the highlight of the film. And I think it's probably what people are going to be most interested about it. And interestingly enough, I read that it's getting released on Canadian TV as a three part series, which made a lot of sense to me because it's, I mean, a little bit longer than your average, like rise and fall biopic film. And it's sort of shot like a, a TV show. It's got like this short shaky cam and it like that, like hard zoom in on everyone whenever we cut to somebody kind of like the office or parks and rec. So you get the sense that Glenn Howerton is really in his element. It's probably a very similar to vibe to how it is on the set of Always Sunny. But from reading that interview, Jamie, with the director, apparently Glenn Howerton is just a like super serious professional actor who like, you know, gets in, has all these ideas about how to do, never has to, you know, retake a line or anything like that. And I mean, I think that's the thing. He like fully commits to it. He like fully puts so much energy into it and that inadvertently causes the humor of the film. He's so fun and enjoyable to just watch lose it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that it's getting released on as a TV series because I saw an interview with Matt Johnson that is unfortunately not the one that you did, Jimmy. Other interviews are available. How dare you? But they're not as good. But um, yeah, it was an interview he did where he said that they shot a lot of coverage for this film, a lot of long takes and a lot of scenes to the point where the original, if you put everything back together, the film would be about four and a half hours long. So I wonder whether there's an element of like, they have, like Matt Johnson has got enough material to fit basically, and has made a film version that's two hours and then put a bunch of extra stuff in. I think the thick of it comparison's really apt as well because like it does have that kind of pseudo documentary feel. You feel like you're a fly on the wall in these engineering meetings or in these board meetings that are going terribly until they're going well. I think it's really pacey. And also, I think crucially, maybe this is, comes from the, the way that it was put together and the way that it was edited. Uh, edited. <laughs> and I'm going to leave that in because it's really, really apt to stumble so badly on the word edited. Um, I think it doesn't overplay its hand, that it doesn't try to do too much in a lot of cases, that it doesn't linger too long on things that aren't going to go anywhere. I mean, I think it's really interesting that you've pointed that out because there's this inherent humility to it, right? It's not... Like, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurial businessy films later on in the show, but 
in the grander context of this genre, what we've had before is stuff like the social network, which is, you know, everybody uses Facebook and everybody knows Facebook and there is some general interest in its origins, but the film can very successfully say, oh, you know, Jesse Eisenberg is addicted to checking his friend request feed. Like it has that angle, that kind of like, mm, is it that good a thing that this got created? Whereas like Blackberry goes hard in, in one of these two directions. It just goes like, no, it's all shit. Like nobody likes Blackberry and the creator was completely corrupted by his own creation. It opens up this like new avenue for entrepreneurial f- films, which is completely anti-capitalist. And it, I think that that's the thing is that it would be really, really bleak, right? Like the main character getting trapped in this very Sisyphean ending and it would probably be a very uh, grim watch if not for the fact that like you just know where they're going with it like everyone knows about the Blackberry and how like it's shit and we don't like it and no one really cared about it that much I remember a guy I went to uni with went through I think by the end it was 16 Blackberries he was very (laughs) he was very into them but also this guy had mobile phone insurance and is the reason that mobile phone insurance is expensive and difficult to claim on because the guy just kept losing them on nights out or dropping them down I'm sure he dropped one down a sewer and two down the toilet not simultaneously like it was a consecutive droppings but this guy over the time that i knew him at uni lost double digit numbers of blackberries i think one of the things about blackberry is that in hindsight and this is one of the things that matt johnson's talked about in press i think possibly with you jamie when you spoke to him mm-hmm. which you can read in the skinny magazine he's spoken about the fact that like this was a phone that actually had a lot of problems but it did work and it did do what it was supposed to do and it's like People were so eager for a smartphone to come along that they were willing to take something that had a tiny little keyboard on it, could only really do text emails, and would every so often, as they discuss in the film, the email servers would just implode and everyone would lose all their messages. It has done a really good job of capturing a very specific moment in time and like historic, like historic, historic, historicalizing, that's not right, like chronicling, chronicling something that doesn't get a lot of attention. Even in that one. Uh, Steve Jobs film like it doesn't feel like it's a particular moment in the history of technology it's more wrapped in like Jobs's genius whereas there's genius happening here but it's just like clashing with so many different other ideas like thirst for money and the Mm. fact that people actually want this kind of technology even though it's not necessarily the best thing so yeah I mean I also love the the like turbo nerd ethos of it all this like that these guys are like fucking on star trek forums on dial-up modem and they're playing you know LAN party rts's on their crt monitors it's like that very indulgent liberated nerd thing that like doesn't exist since disney bought out all the nerdy properties yeah and i think as well the other thing of the kind of tragedy of the film is that Jay Baruchel's character, Mike Lazaridis, who is the inventor of the Blackberry, basically, dedicated so much of his time and energy to something that did work, but was ultimately kind of always doomed in a sense, because once someone had proven that something like this would work, the obvious kind of like life improvements that could be made to a product like this were never going to be able to be made by him because he was so obsessed with the idea that it had to have a tiny little keyboard. (laughs) But yeah, it's a really fun film. Performances are good. Jay Baruchel's wigs are bad, but this is a low-budget film, so we'll not stick them too much for that. The score and the soundtrack are both excellent. I think it does... It's got some very good needle drops that are very evocative of particular times in the past, even if, as we were watching, I kept shouting out the wrong year by about two years consistently. You know when, in your mind, you're like, the strokes, 
2001. And it's like, nope, 2003. Well, close enough. And then the white stripes will be like, now we're in 2007. Okay, cool. Right. So I'm just off by the, I just miscalibrated by a couple of years. But yeah, really good soundtrack, really good score, really fun, well acted. Matt Johnson is great as Doug, the other co-founder who is the turbo nerd, mm -hmm. the turboist of, the king of the nerds. I don't think that there's a shot where he's not wearing a t-shirt with some video game logo on it. Like he, original Wolfenstein. He is doom. pulling up to the function in the headband bandana in a full business suit. <laughs> Ledge. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think what I like best about the film is it's it's quite honest about business, actually. It's not, I don't think it's exactly anti-capitalist in, in a way, because what it says is actually for these guys to succeed, they needed Jim. You know, like the thing is, those guys were having fun. Like they were, they, these were nerds who were in a, like in their little uh, office, mucking around, playing games, having movie nights, enjoying the hell out of life, but they were never going to be successful. And the reason it is successful is because of Jim and this kind of shark-like reptile who just sees money and like knows how to make money. But the problem is that actually doesn't work either because his mindset was just, right, if I sell the most of these, we're going to make lots of money. And that works for a time, but actually what makes products good is invention and sort of innovation. And the, the problem is once the capitalists took over, it, it can get only get so successful until it implodes, you know, because it, it's, his, it's his greed that actually made the BlackBerry bad because he wanted to grow it so quickly. All this, that's why all the servers failed because they couldn't keep up with the demand. It's an interesting, you need capitalists to make shit work, but actually, once it's working, get them out of the way because they will ruin it. You know, so like, it's actually quite ambivalent about his that character, I think, which I think is more, kind of more honest, actually. But the thing that the film is not honest about is it, it acts as if these guys are losers. And see, if you look up the net worth of these guys, these guys are billionaires. So like the idea that this is like, I mean, it's a rise and fall of this uh, company. And it's, you're meant to think, oh, this plucky little company that was good for a couple of years and then sunk. They made a hell of a lot of money. Like the guy Doug... Is, is like one of the richest guys in Canada. So. It, it said there's a little thing at the end where it's like the where are they now and it's like he's secretly one of the richest men in the world which yeah. obviously isn't a secret anymore because of this film but, but, but like yeah. Thanks man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like so the film is trying to paint them as like kind of plucky underdogs who failed and you know and we've got to find them adorable but actually they made a lot of cash and you know I'm sure they're pretty happy I think the sort of angle of it really is that you just watch their happiness dissolve like they're, they're, they're that beautiful little like you know club of turbo nerds at the very beginning who are having all this fun yeah. like Jay Baruchel sort of turns against them he gets swept up in the success and starts you know, screaming at them, and it's like that's not very how to train your dragon. Yeah, well, makes you know? all makes all about quality as well. Make makes ideas at the start. He wants this to be a quality product. He wants to be made in Canada with like Canadian uh, engineering, and like they ship it off to Asia where like they can't control the quality. What they're getting is not as good. And yeah, it's like kind of good cautionary tale. But we see it all the time with products that start like people love them. They're great. They expand too quickly. We could say about some businesses in uh, Edinburgh, perhaps that not naming any names but you know Pierre sweating a bit buckets here as we get <laughs> I mean the thing is Jamie and you know this for a fact You're gonna cut I, would, I would cut it anyway um, yeah and I think that the way that I think you're both I think you're both right <laughs> classic hosting because I think it is an anti-capitalist tale in the sense that it shows that so many of the things that you want from life are incompatible with being this kind of big brain business boy you can't value your friendship with your co-founder of this business 
over making more phones to make more money because the business imperative is that you make more phones to make more money. So then you have to, because there's a moment where Glenn Howerton's character says that a thing that he learned in business school is that you have to make sacrifices to succeed and the bigger the sacrifice, the greater the success, <laughs> which I would say is that what uh, Sun Tzu or Warren Buffett said that, <laughs> you horseshit peddler. I think it's quite a truthful look at the fact that actually this idea of like the entrepreneurial zeal of people, actually you need people to keep you in check and you can't just be a one man army. That means that you need other people who have other skills than you. And that maybe the best thing you could do is all work together and not let one person go absolutely hog wild with it. And I don't know, sell loads of phones that aren't going to work or constantly be having movie nights and never doing any work. What if there was some way that we could balance all these things and work together? But that'll never catch on. I've always been told that working together is a fool's errand and that you should always look out for number one. That's the motto of this three-person hosted podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Blackberry is in cinemas across the country from this Friday, 6th of October. It is was that a shit? Foghorn. <laughs> We're about to get hit by the Titanic. Oh no, Jim Balsilly's back after we heard what I said 20 minutes ago. Um, yes, Blackberry is in cinemas across the country from Friday the 6th of October. It's on the GFT in Glasgow. It's on at the Cameo in Edinburgh and at a bunch of other places also. So go and check it out. It's got big three thumbs up from us. And from a bunch of business lads doing business to a bunch of women talking shop, as it were. What am I talking about? It's Smokes on a Sisterhood. So it's a new documentary by Anna Hintz, which focuses on a group of women sharing stories while taking part in the Estonian tradition of the smoke sauna. It kind of follows them through the seasons and follows their conversations about relationships, family, body image. Jim, it's one that you said would have been ideal to watch in a cinema because it's a very kind of like warm, intimately shot and intimately put together film. Ellie, I'll come to you first. What did you think of Smoke Sana Sisterhood? Uh, I did like this film. I think that, yeah, it's got it's got its own atmosphere. It's not necessarily aesthetically anything particularly revolutionary. The film has this sort of like, you know, as a documentary is, it, it has a lot of establishing shots, but it uses a very like it uses very like broad brush strokes of like darkness or steam or snow or bodies. This is mostly what you're going to be looking at throughout the film. They're like telling their stories against this like pitch black background, which makes some of the shots look like Renaissance paintings, which are like, what is it called? Uh, like chiaroscuro or something when the background is. Uh, yes, totally chiaroscuro dark. is the uh, Caravaggio style. Mm. Yes, it is the tension between light and dark where you get extremes of both in the same composition. Great, I'm glad oh, I welcome it to, Welcome to Art Hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to, and thanks for listening to Art Corner. <laughs> but, well, I mean, way, way more interesting than what we're seeing on screen is what we're hearing. The stories that are told, the, the very open dialogues, there's no topic that's sort of like too intense to cover. We go through everything from uh, abortion to abuse to divorce to coming out. The, it's interesting, I think, that the these people telling their stories they're not filmed from like the shoulders up they're filmed from the shoulders down so we just hear their voice and we see their kind of like middle body and it's like focusing on you know their openness their exposure but at the same time it's not that like you know it's not that these are just like very 
general stories that anyone can kind of like put their own identity into. They're quite personal. They tap into stories of like nationhood. There's someone who talks about, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and how domestic abuse increased in that time or like, you know, post-World War II austerity and how that made everyone like more on edge and it really like ate at the safety of women. You know, a lot of cultural talk. There's someone who says that when describing how their family like just show them no intimacy ever, she says, oh, you know, love, Estonians don't really talk about it. So, you know, there's lots to learn from it. It's really, really fascinating to listen to. And the stories themselves, like, they're not sort of very gently introduced into the film. Like, the second that we're there, we're hearing people talk. It kind of starts as it means to go on. They're very heartfelt. They're very thoughtful. They're sometimes incredibly tragic, but sometimes quite funny. So it's just like a very well-made and enjoyable documentary. Quite short, quite simple but it really platforms the people that it's trying to record. It does have a kind of soft intensity to it. The frame is often quite full of bodies and steam and sound. And it's just try it's really placing these, like say, kind of semi-anonymized but real personal stories in front of you and letting you kind of see the connections between them and how they all join up. Jamie, what did you think? Yeah, as soon as you say, I thought it was incredibly beautiful. I thought it was like quite innovative, and it's because it's a, in in some ways a really simple film. We don't really. It's just a bunch of women in in the same room talking for like ninety minutes, and it's shot. I mean, it's shot over like a I think a, a year because it starts off with like uh, somebody chipping away at the kind of ice lake so they can all go for a dip after um, their sauna and then at the end you know it, it's a beautiful sunshine and they're swimming in the same lake so it's, it's incredibly simple in its structure but in its form it's really innovative like I, I, I thought the way it used the camera was really interesting because actually sometimes you can't even tell what you're seeing at first because the screen is so dark it's shot inside the saunas which are quite dark spaces you know are you seeing a knee are you seeing a breast is it a shoulder and the steam's obviously there as well so like the form and the um, bodies kind of just like appear it's, it's quite abstract actually like you know it's actually more like Picasso or something the way, like, where you see these kind of like yeah surreal objects and and, and I, I guess that way they avoid the kind of problem of like you know the kind of uh, like leering look like because you just, you're just getting sort of pits of body the body doesn't become like you know a sexual object it's just like sort of very intimate kind of bit of an armpit bit of a knee you know and that's it and I think that's a really interesting way to do it but it has a strange effect because even though it's this really intimate film where we're hearing the most personal of stories we actually don't really know any of the women because there's no kind of like you say talking heads there's no kind of titles coming up introducing people I don't think we even learn Emby's name there's maybe one name yeah here, like, like maybe like somebody whispers a name but you never like you never and because the women are all kind of blonde and you you're, you don't really see them in full you only see like bits of them it's actually quite hard to discern who's speaking at any one time sometimes the person speaking like you say is just off screen altogether so we just see a part of their body or we maybe see um, one of the women reacting to the story and that can actually be very powerful so it's like it's got this real tension of being incredibly intimate but actually um, and very personal with these incredibly personal stories but it's also because we don't know who these people are it becomes incredibly universal so really it's a film about just you know female what's the word it, it, basically they talk about the whole spectrum of, of uh, living as a woman in this world you know like so like you say they talk about all they don't really talk about anything that wouldn't 
that isn't sort of female centric, you know. So they do talk about menstruation, body image, receiving dick pics, like it's like the whole spectrum of stuff. But it's really talking about womanhood, and I think that was quite an interesting choice. And I think that all comes from the form, you know, like the reason it feels so universal. It doesn't actually feel like you know there is obviously cultural specific stuff about Estonia, and this is a very cultural specific thing to go to a sauna and talk to each other. It's actually really universal. For them. So I think people will probably get a lot out of this going along because it's it's yeah it'll probably speak to a lot of women uh, especially about you know because all the subjects they discuss are incredibly universal incredibly moving and yeah i think it just just that choosing that form and that 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 way to film it um was actually a really smart move i think by the filmmaker yeah it is a very effective film at making something out of these this kind of series of conversations and being able to like say even without usual narrative things that you would require like knowing who your characters are or having a kind of through plot it still manages to build out this sisterhood of of all of these kind of shared to one extent or another experiences that women face in the modern world yes i think the fact they're trying to create is like you're in the sauna like that's it's it's Mm -hmm. very much the kind of fly in the wall idea Uh, and because the way it's shot is very dark it's very steamy you know if you watch it in a, a dark warm cinema i think there would be a kind of feeling you know of intimacy of you are there just overhearing these little conversations i think that's the kind of feeling it's trying to evoke i think it does it really well it's a really evocative film you know you can basically smell like the 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 sweat and the steam there's a scene where like they make uh some hams like they smoke ham they smoke some ham in the sauna and my god my mouth was watering i want to eat this ham it looks so delicious uh so yeah if you can if you know where to get some estonian smokehouse ham can you just ship it over it looks fantastic there are some really there are some moments that break the sauna experience they are the dunks in the pool there's one literal dunk but then there's things like there's little bits of accordion playing and there's little scenes of them nipping out to go for a pee while the dog's running around in the forest and yeah. stuff there's also a like mystic old granny who i think two or three times like tells a story that's a little more disconnected from everyone else's in a much older voice and you can like there's ethereal singing in the background and you can see her face begin to form yeah, it's in the witchy. smoke. It's yeah, like, they're, they're trying to describe like some sort of spirituality to yeah. it. But like that's very much what the film I think is trying to do between its its uh, content in terms of like what we are hearing from these people's stories and its aesthetic, like trying to immerse you in this sauna, is it's trying to explain to viewers the essential intersection of like the place and the community. Like the connection between you know, being naked and sweating out your grievances and also being able to be completely open and exposed and talk about the terrible things that you've experienced. One to watch in a dark cinema or a hot bath. Yes. The choice is yours. Or both if you can find a place that does that. Or a kind of sauna screening. That seems like the kind of thing that every man would do. (laughs) Bath time screening of a... Let's team up with the Arlington Bathhouse and get like a little sauna screening going on. That'd be in the Turkish bath. That'd be that'd be really good. That's one for the notes. That's one <laughs> for the uh, list of projects that would be cool if they could happen, but might have to be put on the back burner for now. So, Smoke Sauna Sisterhood is on at the Cameo and the GFT from next Friday, the thirteenth of October. As Jamie said, maybe one to try and catch in the cinema to get the full sauna experience. Uh, but if not, when it comes on streaming, hot bath candle laptop laptop not too close to the bathroom yeah. be careful yeah. yeah the cine skinny cannot take responsibility for you dropping the big your leg of ham for you dropping your ham or your laptop in the bath 
So for this week's chat, we're going to talk about entrepreneurs in film following on from BlackBerry. So big business brains, CEO mindset, getting up at 4am because you love the grind. These are all, I'm sure we can agree, bad and terrible things that should not be venerated or tolerated. But they do make for interesting cinema and television. So we thought we'd have a chat about entrepreneurs in film good examples of them being portrayed in cinema, a very American medium, and what's more American than a traveling entrepreneur who loves to be a shitbag to people. So, Jamie, I thought I would come to you first because I came to LA with the last bit. What have you got for me? Well, at first, actually, I was struggling because I realized a lot of my favorite films are about business. I do have a love of that kind of 80s, plucky entrepreneur movie. So, like, for example, Working Girl, where Melanie Griffiths is this kind of plucky secretary who becomes the executive, or um, The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox, where he starts in the mailroom and he works his way up, or even... I think one of the great teen movies of all time, Risky Business with Tom Cruise as a high school student who becomes a, the, a pimp basically and turns his parents like suburban house into a brothel. Classic 1980s. Yeah, yes. But what's interesting is these films, there is kind of some critique of capitalism, but obviously they, they all come out on top and they all get their like job in business. So, so you know, this is just, this is America, or this is Reagan, this is obviously the type of films that are made. Um, but what's interesting, if you actually look beyond these kind of more mainstream films, there was tons of amazing films where the yuppie is the bad guy. And that's a kind of genre in the 80s and as well. So that, so there's stuff that come to me. And I think the first one that comes to mind, I mean, it's not, when I said it was not mainstream, this is totally mainstream, but Paul Reisner as a, a Carter Burke and uh, aliens, you know, uh, so like I think to me is the kind of ultimate sleazy corporate man, you know, like who will basically do anything. He's like he's more he's more like a bootlicker than an entrepreneur. He's the guy who's like you know lead like not leading the strip but overseeing it for the company who's running it. He, he initially seems like a nice guy, but then he turns out he's trying to like murder everyone and get a. Uh, um, Ripley pregnant with this alien so he could take it back to Earth. He's a monster uh, and he gets his just desserts, uh, which I love. But yeah, but then but then I start to think of lots of other 80s films like this. So an another classic is uh, Miguel Ferreira um, as Bob Morton in Robocop. He's like basically the the guy who, you know, comes up with the idea of turning dead cops into robots to clean up uh, Detroit. Uh, Making him b both a cop and a businessman, which is not a double negative, it's just two negatives. Before anyone calls in and is like, is that fine? First of all, how did you get this number? Second of all, fuck off. Yeah, so, you know, that's um, that's Paul Verhoeven, who's obviously one of the great kind of satirists and a great anti-capitalist kind of uh, filmmaker. You know, other ones are just fun. I wouldn't say this is an anti-capitalist film. It's just, it's too fun and it enjoys the characters too much. But Glengarry Gross, this kind of like... Uh, team of car salesmen basically and Alec Baldwin makes a cameo and gives one of the great speeches uh, of all time which is just so fun that you cannot say he's, he's like the bad guy but he's just like his his mentality is insane for all salespeople out there like I think they both adore this guy but really you know he's, he's the worst not this isn't an 80s movie but certainly he's I think Patrick Bateman from American Psycho is like the perfect, he's not an entrepreneur either, but he's like, he's in that world where essentially he doesn't care about anything about making money and murdering people. That's that's the two things he's into. And uh, I mean, that's, I think the, 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 the kind of, like the line between psychopath and entrepreneur is actually paper thin. And I think that's a perfect film for exploring that. Yeah, I think one common thread through a lot of those is that they all present this idea that like this person would have been all right if they had just stopped there 
if you know what I mean. This idea, like with um, like with Patrick Bateman, like he's surrounded by these other business assholes, but like he is just too much for the society to like. You can it's this thing of like you can be really really rich and you can do really really terrible things, but once you cross the line, that's when everyone has the kind of moral turn to Jesus moment, and it's like, nah, we can't allow that. We allowed that, and we allowed that. We were mostly fine with that, but that come now let's sort this out so yeah i think there's like an interesting thread through a lot of those particularly like say in the 80s when it was a very kind of like greed is good mentality that a lot of the films that had business baddies in that they were doing actions similar to what people would understand as like a kind of typical business or work thing it's just they were pushed to the extent where even people who would have previously been on board were like nah i draw the line at trying to impregnate a (laughs) space station pilot with an alien and then using that alien for personal gain. That's my line in the sand <laughs> and I won't have it. Ellie, I know the film that you want to talk about is much more about someone whose behaviour could be seen and is actually seen as kind of like good and all right by some people. But we're here to say, no, put down that sandwich. Yeah, uh, <laughs> earlier on, I mentioned the social network and how it kind of, how I think that Blackberry, which we talked about earlier, is kind of a film that's come about as a as a natural terminus for some of the ideas in the social network. I think that there's a stepping stone between these two films, and I think it's The Founder, which came out in 2016. It's directed by John Lee Hancock, who did The Alamo. He did Saving Mr. Banks with Tom Hanks's Walt Disney. So he's had a very like flattering depiction of some foundational history in modern America. But in this film, which sees milkshake machine salesman Ray Kroc franchise the McDonald's restaurant and eventually oust the founding brothers from the business, it depicts him as this brilliant monster and it almost might have like been glorifying Croc's ambition if not for the fact that he's played by Michael Keaton who is just a terrifying human being. I don't know how deliberate it is really but there's a point where he like pitches the plan to the McDonald's brothers and he's he just goes like franchise, 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 franchise. Like, he's such a little freak. He gets rejected because the McDonald's brothers who are John Carroll Lynch and Nick Offerman they're like humble good-natured people but he comes back and he they see him out the window standing on the other side of the car park and he like walks up to the window and just says you gotta do it for your country (laughs) um like he's already unhinged but the film is this like steady descent into an even madder performance he you know eventually gets their permission to franchise mcdonald's and then when he finds out that his pals at the country club who are investing as franchise uh, the franchises they haven't been keeping up the standards of the original restaurant he like finds this picks half a burger out of the trash and charges at them across the golf course and like waves it in their face being like look at that what is that lettuce what the hell's the matter with you like to me going back to blackberry like in Blackberry, the ridiculousness of it is disarmed by the fact that we all know that the Blackberry is going to fail and that these horrible characters have their fate sealed. Like, we know that the Black... Everyone knows the Blackberry is a tragedy. But McDonald's is everywhere and it's, like, not going to stop. And it is so successful because people were fucked over. So even though Michael Keaton has this incredible unhinged energy, much like Glenn Howerton in Blackberry, he could just laugh right back at you because he's like, he got what he wanted. He created the most successful food franchise of all time. And yeah, so like, I do think that Blackberry definitely like looked back on the founder in terms of like how to model the performance of Glenn Howerton in Blackberry. But the thing about it is like, it's almost unintentionally funny. It's like, just cracked you know it's very weird it's very unhinged 
Um, and it, I think it only could have worked because of Michael Keaton. Uh, Jamie, do you have anything else to add? Well, I was going to say, like, always we're talking about cinema here, but I think actually if we we're going to talk about the ultimate entrepreneurs who are psychopaths, you got to talk about, you know, the kind of like TikTokers, you know, the kind of the Bitcoin boys who like project this lifestyle of, you know, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, I work out for three hours and then I read the art of war for four hours and then I work for 20 minutes and use our mugs because I'm a millionaire. There's this kind of whole brand and they don't realize they are basically a satire. They are basically Patrick Bateman. They are basically Alec Baldwin from Glenn Gregg and Ross, but they've, they've made it into their personality. And it's like, uh, those are the terrified people because are, those are real. You know, like they, they think they are entrepreneurs. I don't mean, maybe, maybe they are millionaires or I don't, I don't know, but they are not to me. I mean, people. it's the, like what we can learn about a lot of these films, right? Is that behind many like really successful global brands, there's always like a chance meeting or, you know, an, like an unexpected twist of fate that brings an entrepreneur and an artist together. Whereas I think that's something that you can't really admit in the business world that like it kind of is just luck. Cause then if, you admit that Harvard Business School kind of becomes useless, doesn't it? Yeah, because the only thing they could teach you at Harvard, they could teach you at Harvard Business School how to be a scumbag. But they would say, now what you have to do is wander the streets until you bump into the person, until you bump into the king from off of Burger King, and he lets you run his restaurant and call yeah. it Burger King. So I think that's why people, there's some people who so desperately cling to this, like, how to be an alpha bullshit and, like, always on the grind because they can't admit to themselves that you can't just make the right lifestyle choices and eventually you'll be rich. Acknowledging the problems with that not working would be to acknowledge the problems with the entire capitalist system. It's like, you and know- that, They don't do that at Harvard <laughs> Business School. The, like, there's another big entrepreneur film that came out this year that I didn't see. I saw the trailer and I thought it looked just unbelievably shit. It's air <laughs> about Nike, how they- create Air Jordans. It's the amazing story of how Nike created Air Jordans. And I'm like, I don't see any angle for that being interesting. Like we talk about usually in these films, there's something to suggest that the businessman is like unhinged or whatever. But this film just seems to be about like how fucking cool it was that the biggest shoe company met up with the hottest athlete and they made shoes and everything was awesome forever. Like, it's like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They're like action heroes who are meant to be, you know, the heads of Nike or whatever. And you're right that they're like, and the secret ingredient was money. Yeah. We gave Michael Jordan money. It's like hardly and now a, we sell shoes with his silhouette on the it's side. It's hardly a, you know, chance meeting, uh, like fated intertwining of like unexpected people. If they make a prototype of an Air Jordan in the office in an evening like they do when they have to make a Blackberry to take to the pitch and it's just a bunch of other shoes stapled together, then I will. we will take back everything we've just, just said a, about it's, Air. It's just a crock with a baseball card stuck in it. <laughs> I don't suppose either you've seen Dumb Money yet, no? No. That's the new one. It's, it's maybe just been out a couple of weeks. It's like Paul Dano. Um, it's about the guy who like, elevated GameStop. That's kind of like out of date shop and sort of totally inflated its uh, prices by like sort of just bigging it up online and totally kind of screwed over Wall Street because they were all betting against it. Again, it's like a, it's, it's exposing this system as just being flawed and it's full of people who are just chancers and yeah, like our, our whole kind of economic system is based on bullshit really. I, I remember when that thing was actually happening, when people like Reddit users were shorting GameStop stock 
And like, it was this really interesting development because all of a sudden these apps that people are using for stock trading are like banning them and stopping them. So it's just like people are realizing in real time that, you know, the economic world is full of all these like fabricated barriers. And I am interested in that story just because I remember it so well, but I don't know, like I kind of assumed that the film wouldn't be that interesting. Cause the thing about that story as it was happening is it was like, you were just reading things on your phone about people who were on their computers, typing things and getting notifications on their app. Like that doesn't sound very cinematic to me. It's moving number from one place to another. Like it's, and then winning. It, it's the film. Like what happened is conceptually interesting, right? Mm. It exposed a lot of flaws with the way that stock is traded and the way that companies treat their traders. But it was all in text. All of it had. It was all digital. Yeah, like, I guess like uh, the Big Short must be the similar idea. And it was very successful. I mean, I don't think it's a great film, but like I think people enjoyed it. So it won one award. So. Speaking of the dumb money GameStop thing, there is a new documentary by Dan Olson, who is a, a video essayist and documentarian. And he's just put out a new documentary called This Is Financial Advice, which is all about the GameStop thing and about short selling. It goes into, in the first half that I watched yesterday, it goes into so much detail and so, and unpicks the story in a way that, like you were saying, Jimmy, proves that it is like a systemic problem because it talks about the kind of like meme stock people, but it also talks about like how short selling actually works. But then it also talks about how a lot of the people who got in on the kind of let's meme this GameStop stock still have it because they're like, no, we've proven that the financial system is broken. So we will hold on to our stock until it is worth like $10 million a share. <laughs> people are talking seriously about the fact that like, I'll never sell this stock, ignoring the fact that like, the way that the system is constructed, you like have to sell it. You have to have lots of liquid. You basically have to have money in order to participate in this thing. And that is why these apps like stopped letting people buy and sell shares because it was all being done basically on credit. But because it was a short sell, you had to like, you were basically on the hook for whatever the end price of the thing would be. So then the Robin who like trading app were like, oh, well, you know, we can't just be on the hook for an indefinite amount of money from a bunch of people who've never seen the stock market before 20 minutes ago. I feel like this conversation has gone in a strange direction. Yeah, I feel like I need a business degree to start talking about I this. I feel like I need to ask someone to pull something up on screen and I don't want that to be this kind of podcast. <laughs> All I know about um, stocks and shares is from trading places. And I know there's four types of stocks. There's uh, frozen orange juice, yep. there's pork bellies, yep. uh, and I forget the other two actually. And then I think there's the NASDAQ and the FTSE, and that's it. And you can trade those four things in concert. You can hedge, uh, if you say, I'm gonna hedge orange juice against the FTSE 100, that sounds like a thing that someone might say, wearing a suit. <laughs> I don't think I hedge the products against the, the actual uh, stocks, but uh, the what can uh, I say? I'm just a sweet summer child who doesn't engage in the world of business. Quite a lot that we got through that actually that went yeah. in a bit of a different direction than some of these chats do. But dumb money is in cinemas now. Aliens and Robocop and American Psycho are all on streaming. The founder is that on Netflix? Just it now? is on Netflix. It yeah. is on Netflix. So go and give it a watch. And I just wanted to give a shout out to the Amanda Seyfried Disney Plus show, The Dropout. Oh yeah, with about uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the blood liar uh, from Theranos, who said that she had a magic machine that could test for every disease under the sun from a single drop of blood. She didn't, and it couldn't. That's the short version of the story. But oh, 
the long version of the story is quite something. So I'll leave you all with that for the next two weeks uh, when I believe Anaheat will be back, but I will be on holiday. I'm going to be in Manchester. Oh, wow. And then exotic. up north. Doubly exotic. I mean, that, I mean, some, to some people, Manchester is up north. So it's confusing. So, yeah, I've, everywhere's up north. I've revealed my location. It's time for me to go. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Jamie. Uh, thank you, Pierre. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, tell people and then they'll come and listen to it and they'll enjoy it. Uh, you can listen to or read Jamie's interview with Matt Johnson from Blackberry in various places, our Spotify account, YouTube account, and in the magazine that is out this week. Pick it up. It's got a lovely purple cover. It's delightful. Get us on socials. Give us a shout on email if you want. It's all in the show notes, but we'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye. Bye.